You're listening to the Sunday podcast from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Good morning. There it is. Fantastic. Hey, we had our drive-in movie night Friday night. Yeah, who was here? It was amazing out on our brand new turf. Have you taken a chance to go and roll in it? Just roll around in it, right? Because come summertime, you will have third-degree burns if you do that. So do it now. It's pleasant. It's delightful. Dare I say it's enjoyable. Um, it, we, we did that out there. We had probably about eight to 900 people here with kids and adults and volunteers. So it was packed. People everywhere. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for coming, giving to it, supporting it. Uh, all of Santan Valley had heard about it in some way or another, so we sort of made our mark. So I guess we got to keep doing community-driven events, right? Show people that's what we're a part of, and uh, I love it. I love doing it. We're going to be in the book of John this morning, John chapter 18. Last week, Dave Stockton was here from Living Streams, and he talked about the first part of John 18, which is the betrayal of Jesus by, John, by Judas, and of course, Peter's uh, try, cutting off the ear of one of the Roman guards who came to arrest Jesus, and then Jesus has to sort of pick the air back up and put it on him. At that point, if you're that guard, don't you just sort of be like, all right, I'm done. I'm out. I'm not arresting this guy. He just put my ear back on. Like, how do you go about still arresting him? Like, thanks for that. I still got to arrest you, though. Uh, this is awkward. John 18, so we're going to move past that, and we're going to move to Jesus being brought before Pilate who is the official over this area of uh, Roman influence. And uh, I don't know if you know this, and so I've got some really, really positive stuff to tell you today, but I've got something really tough to tell you this morning as well. As of a week or so ago, you entered into an election year. That's what we're in right now is an election year. We're at the beginning of it. And here's the thing about election years. They tend to bring out the best in people. It tends to be a year of joy, singing, positivity, love, just elections let us know we're all human and we're so kind to one another. So we have an election year coming up in which we will uh, decide who will take the highest throne in our country, the office of president and all sorts of senators, congressmen, and all of that uh, will be decided on. And we will set in course a political power for the next four years of our country, right? Well, at this time, with Jesus being arrested and being brought before Pilate, Pilate was the force, the political power for his area, and he's going to flex his political muscle in front of Jesus a little bit, and he's going to get a dose of truth and love that he wasn't expecting. And so we're going to look at this this morning because Jesus is very clear about how his kingdom will come on this earth and how he wants you and I to operate inside of it, okay? how his kingdom will come, and how he wants you and I to operate inside of it. That's what we're going to look at. John 18, 33 through 38, and then we're going to jump into 19 a bit. Pilate then went back inside the palace. So he went back inside the palace because he went out to the uh, chief magistrates and the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders and said, look, I find nothing wrong with this guy. Why, why, why are we executing him? And they said, because he claims to be a king He's going to overthrow Rome. He's a bad guy. Trust us. Take him out. So Pilate goes back inside and he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people, your chief priests handed you over to me. 
What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom, it's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now, my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered him, you are right in saying that I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. (laughs) What is truth? Pilate asked. And with this, he went out again to the Jews, and he told them, I find no basis for charge against him. Now we get to 19, verses 1 through 7, and it says that even though he couldn't find a basis to charge them in order to appease the crowd that had gathered, he sends them off to be flogged and scourged. You know, it's tough because as I study for this, you can read over those words so quickly, and we just read it, and then we just sort of get to the next verse and the next verse, and we see where... But just take a minute with that. That's why I forever will be grateful, no matter who he is as a man, Mel Gibson, for creating the passion of the Christ, for letting us get to see and feel those words. So they become more than just words on a piece of paper. But Pilate just flippantly sends him off to have this done, to have his flesh ripped off his back and his body, to have a crown of thorns, it says, shoved into his skull, into his head. And then, after all of that, he's brought back before Pilate in the palace. They take his weakened, barely hanging on to life body, they drag him back in. Pilate sees this, goes out to them and says, look, I, uh, I really don't want any part of this. this. This is getting a little out of hand. And they say, this man claims to be the son of God. It's blasphemy and it's, uh, it's an insult to Rome. When Pilate heard this, verse 8, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace, and he asked Jesus, where do you come from? And Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. This is God's word for us this morning. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? God, give us wisdom. Lord, Holy Spirit, let us understand and hear what it is you're doing here, that we could affect change in our life and community by following your example here. In Jesus' name, amen. God is completely in control. You hear me? Completely in control, 100%. Now, that does not mean that you're not still responsible for your behavior, right? Now, there's all sorts of arguments about free will and whether we have free will, and you can get into all of this theological mess, but at the end of the day, God created time just like he created the hairs on your head, the eyeballs that you see with time. It's an invention by God. Can you understand that? It's not something that was before he invented it. Isn't that strange? Time did not exist until God decided to make it exist. So he is in control of everything. He moves outside of time, and yet you do not. I do not. Therefore, I have the free will to choose the behavior that I act on, even if he knows what I will do. God is completely 
in control. And we see this here as he's brought before Pilate. He has humbled himself. He has lowered himself. He has the ultimate political power, the ultimate power and authority to speak and things become reality. And yet he has humbled himself before his very creation in order to redeem us, in order to love us. In the beginning of this interrogation, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus asks him, is that your own idea or has someone been talking to you about me? Now, Jesus isn't just being sarcastic here. He isn't being rude to Pilate. In fact, he's actually being incredibly gracious to Pilate. I don't know if you can see that, but he is actually getting really personal with Pilate. And he's saying, Pilate, are you wanting to know if I'm the king of the Jews or are you just saying that because someone told you I was? Pilate, I love you. I created you. I would love for you to genuinely want to know who I am. Is that the case? Because if it is, I'll tell you. But if you're just saying it because someone told it to you about me, well, then here's the answer. Isn't that amazing? In the midst of the man who's going to give the thumbs up or thumbs down to whether or not he will live or not, he still cares about him and loves him. And he gives him this sort of personal invitation. He goes after him. And so what we have here is a confrontation of Jesus Christ with the political power of the time. Rome was the greatest political uh, entity that was at the time and one of the greatest that's ever been. And here's Jesus face to face with the political power. Pilate represented Rome and the empire, and here he is with this, this dilemma, this man brought before him who in his eyes hasn't really committed any sin, and yet the people of this region say he's committed a really grievous sin and want his execution. And he's trying to figure out what's best for Rome. Now, I want you to see something really clearly here. Pilate... His main concern is, does this man pose a threat to the Roman government, to the Caesar? Does this man pose a threat? He claims to be a king. His people are saying he's a king. Does he have an army amassed somewhere? Does he wish to overthrow Rome? That's what he's really after. Pilate is trying to assess. He does not care. When he asks the question, are you king of the Jews, he's not asking theologically Are you the man talked about in the Old Testament and the prophecies, the Old Covenant? He just wants to know, is this something I need to be worried about? Do I need to prepare an army to come against what you have planned? Are they going to come and try to break you out? Pilate is concerned about his political power. He's concerned about his power to make people do things. And that's what I want to show you this morning. The difference between the political power of this world and the truth of Jesus Christ. They're in stark contrast to one another. And I'm going to show you how one lasts and the other fades rather quickly. His answer to Pilate is purposefully ambiguous. In verse 36, he seems to say, no, I'm not the king because I'm not in this world, of this world. And then in verse 37, he says, no, I am a king and I am coming into the world. He's purposefully being ambiguous before Pilate because the answer is so sophisticated, so complex that it can't just be given with a yes or no. And what he's doing is he's wanting to draw out of Pilate a longing for something greater than where he is. You notice that? Why else does he answer him that way? Why else does he 
lead him into these questions. He's wanting Pilate to think, and it works. Pilate thinks. Pilate goes out multiple times to the crowd and says, please don't make me execute this guy. After he's flogged and scourged and he comes back before him and Christ says that, uh, that quote to him at the end when he says, you have no power except for what's been granted authority to you. He walks out and goes, okay, my hands are off. If you want to do it, do it. But I do not want to be responsible for this. He senses there is something about this man. Jesus has gone after him personally. He is opening up a door for Pilate to see that he is more than just the physical. And when Jesus says, I am not of this world, if I were, my servants would fight. Now, it's important to understand that because that's what Peter tried to do, isn't it? When he was arrested, Peter pulled a sword and began to fight. Jesus never wants his people to wage war in his name. Ever. Wait a minute. Haven't we waged war in the name of God before? Haven't Christians battled and overtaken countries and territories? Wasn't there something called the Crusades a while back in which we killed four or five people in the name of the Lord? Thousands, hundred, hundred thousand. So, are they, were they wrong? Were they wrong in what they did? I mean, wasn't it a righteous crusade? I don't know. Wasn't Peter righteous to cut off the ear of the man who was about to arrest Jesus? In our view, yes. It's a righteous thing. Stand up for the Lord. Jesus said, no, Peter, put away your sword. This is not how the kingdom of God will come. The kingdom of God will not come by force. It will come through truth. Because force and political power is temporary. Truth is forever. It will last beyond this generation. It will last beyond this kingdom. And my kingdom will rule forever. Peter, put your sword away. He never wishes for us to wage war in his name. That wasn't his way. It's not the way he's doing it. And that's tough for us because that's sort of the only way we know how to get power is strength over strength, right? Will versus will. Jesus says, no, truth, humility, service, generosity, that will overcome any other political power that you try to go against. In fact, in Asia, Latin America, and Africa today, Christianity is growing faster than the populations in those areas. Christianity is growing faster than they can have kids. In North America, we're what you would call stagnant. Have you ever seen a pond or a swamp? That's sort of Christianity here, right? We're just sort of like, meh. Yeah, we'll take God. He sounds nice. I like, his, I like some of the things he does about being generous to people who are down and out, and I like his equality of men and women. That's neat. You want to know one place in the world, the only continent in the world actually, where Christianity is in retreat, where the churches are empty? Pastor, uh, well, uh, Jerry Vanderveen uh, has spoken up here. He's our Dutchman from Holland. Europe is currently a place where the churches are in retreat. And when he was back there just uh, earlier this year, he came back and told stories, and he showed a bunch of pictures, if you remember that, of churches, beautiful churches that he knew and went to growing up in his hometown that are now nightclubs, bars, office complexes, and one just had a giant pool in the middle of it. And the church is dead 
And he said, man, the church is closed up. They've, locked, they've closed so many churches. And you say, why? Well, a thousand years ago, uh, Europe began experimenting with this thing called Christendom. Christendom, Christian kingdom, right? And so what it was is it was a state-run church that the church would be governed by the state, that it would be required for anybody in the upper echelons of power to attend the church and to give to the church. The church would be paid for through taxes and would be governed by the laws of the state, not the laws of the Bible. The church run by the state. And it has killed the church in Europe. It has destroyed it. You see, when man tried to take political power and use it on God's kingdom and ignore when John 18 here, and we begin to use the sword to get people to follow Christ, it kills the word of God. It stops being, it stops being the truth of who God is and it just starts being the power of what man wants. Isn't that fascinating? So you mean we can't make people become Christians? We can't make them love the Lord? No. You absolutely can't. God calls and God draws, and whom he calls and who he draws is who will come to him. It's an interesting, mysterious, difficult concept when you're standing on the outside of it, but when you decide to submit and humble yourself before him, it's the greatest, most miraculous thing that you will ever know or see. God calls and God draws. You see, the church has always done better on the outsides. It's always done better in the margins, the poor, the destitute, the criminals, the, the lacking, because they see a necessity and a need that they can't find in the world. They have no power in the world. And they come and they find the truth of God. And they begin to implement the things of God. They begin to implement change in their family they begin to implement change in society and how they relate to each other, not based off a of class or money or race or religion, but based off the fact that we're all human and I'm asked to love my neighbor, so I'll love my neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Everybody is. Remember that? Who's my neighbor? You see, Christianity changed the Roman world. It changed the Roman world, but it didn't do it through political power. We like to look at Constantine from 300 AD and say, well, yeah, Constantine came in and made Christianity the national religion, and that changed everything. No, false. Constantine was a pretty wicked guy, actually. <gasps> what? Yes. By the time Constantine came in, Christianity, although the people were the minority, Christians were still the minority in Rome, Christian values had permeated all of Rome, all of its territories, right? Christianity is what came in and it looked very conservative in regards to family and sex. Said one man, one woman inside of the confines of marriage, that's what sex is for. Family is meant to be cherished and honored and protected. You see, back in that day, the women were not allowed to have extramarital affairs, but the guys were, right? And then the Bible came in and said, nobody's allowed, that's wrong. It undermines the, the function of family. Also in that day, female infanticide was completely okay and expected. Female infanticide means if you have a child and it's a daughter, 
but you want a boy because boys are more economically viable back then, then they would take the daughter, the baby, and throw it into a field. Not even humanely kill it first, just toss it into the field and let it die. And that was normal. That's what the civilized elite did. That's what the modern, forward-thinking people did. And Christ came along and said, no, all life is precious. All life matters. And the Christians began to change. And then the Christians were really liberal on the other end because on the other end, you had class structure. You had the wealthy, and then the middle, and then the poor, and then the poor of the poor, and never did they interact with one another. You stayed within your class. And if it wasn't class, then you stayed within your race, right? If it wasn't race, then you were Jew, then you stayed away from those Gentiles. Christ came and broke all of those barriers and said, no, you are all my children. Come together, worship together, interact with one another. The rich gave of their wealth so that the poor could have what they did not have. The poor gave of their talents so they can contribute when they didn't have wealth to contribute. Look around this room. We have poor, we have wealthy, we have middle class, we have black, we have white, we have Hispanic. We had Filipino in first service. I don't know. Any Filipinos here this service? No? Okay. We have all sorts of different races, socioeconomic backgrounds, and we're all together worshiping one God. Jesus Christ did that. Understand that. The liberal world today wants to take credit for the unity that you see. They want to take credit that they're the ones who brought everyone together, and Christianity is separatist and bigots, and they're the ones who put it all apart. That is such a lie. It is such a disgusting distortion of the truth. Christ is what made this possible. The modern, forward-thinking world in his time would have been repelled at what they see here. Christ did that. Truth did that. And so what happened in Rome is you had all these Roman citizens who were seeing families grow and thrive under the principles of Christianity, and so they began to adopt the principles, but not Christ. And so by the time Constantine came on the scene in 300 AD, so much of Rome has, was influenced and overcome by Christian principles that he jumped on the Christian bandwagon, made it the national religion, and honestly began to destroy the good that was happening in Rome because he put political power and force behind God's truth. And Christ said, do not do that. Do not do that. My truth is enough. My truth will stand on its own. My truth will carry the test of time. It does not need your power behind it. Isn't that exciting? Doesn't that just sort of like charge you up a little bit, give you goosebumps? He doesn't need the powers that this world has. He doesn't need us to have a righteous, God-fearing president. He doesn't need it. His kingdom will advance no matter who is in the office. There is no president. There is no law. There is no Congress or Senate that could come and stop the kingdom of God. Trust me, they've tried. They have tried for 2,000 years to shut it down and shut them up. So here's what we need to focus on, to my second point, which is why does political power cause so much corruption? 
Why do Christian men and women engage in the same vile remarks on social media that the rest of the world does? Why do we fear and cower if somebody who doesn't believe what we believe is going to be put into office? What it comes down to is your understanding of who you are. You see, political power, what it does is it feels a need, actually any power. It feels a need that humans have, all humans, <laughs> no condition, all humans have the same need, which is to know and be known, to be recognized, to make a mark, to have an impact. Every human has a need to do that in some way. Now, you can have people who say, no, I don't, I've, you've suppressed it, you no longer want it, but yes, all of us do. Is that evil? Is that part of the fall? Is that part of mankind's sin nature? Actually, no, that is from God. God has put that in there, and here's why he's put that in there, because when I have that need, that desire to be known and to be recognized, and I go to my Father for it, then he tells me who I am, fills me with his Holy Spirit, gives me direction, and shows me purpose for my life. You see that? That is of the Lord. That is what God has given you. Think about it. Parents, when you have children and they do something good without you telling them to, isn't that the greatest feeling ever? When they just come to you or you walk downstairs and you're sleepy and they're washing dishes and they didn't have to, they're not in trouble, they haven't done something and they're trying to be, get on your good side, they're just doing it out of the goodness of their heart. Tell me you don't just praise the snot out of them. Oh my gosh, you hug them and kiss them. And they won't do it again for a year or two, but that point is they did it. And you're thrilled to death that they did it. That's the same relationship with the Lord. They want to be recognized for it too, don't they? If your kid ever does something like that, don't they come to you and be like, hey, 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 guess what I did? Guess what I did? Why are they doing that? Because they want to be recognized, they want to be acknowledged. Well, that's what power does especially political power, because political power is the ability to make laws, the ability to tell people what to do and what not to do, to control entire groups of people. And so if you have all of these men and women, think about this, who are not finding their identity and their recognition in the Lord, but they're finding it in their position, now do you wonder why power corrupts people? Why do you think it is the Senate won't put terms on itself? <laughs> right? Presidents want to put terms on themselves. We had to write it into our Constitution because we left England and said, that is a terrible idea. A guy who's solely in power his entire life, and then we went and said, oh, senators, you can do the same thing. No, we're going to have to vote that in if we want it in because they're not going to remove power from themselves. Nobody will. That's like saying, I no longer know who I am. I, let me remove my identity. Let me remove my source of encouragement and being. Now, I say all this, and you get to the point where you say, so you're saying Christians shouldn't be in politics at all. No, quite the opposite. A Christian man or a woman who has found their purpose in Christ Jesus, who finds their identity and recognition in him, can enter into a place of power, and it does not define them. In fact, they find their definition of power as what Christ did, which is service and generosity and giving. That's how he exemplified power. So a Christian man or woman who enters into a role of power would follow that example, and they do not need the power to fill their, their, that void because they already have that in their relationship with Jesus. 
So yes, if you have a desire to enter into the political realm, do it. Just recognize where your truth and power comes from so that the power of the office doesn't overtake you, right? So what does this lead us? If that's the problem with political power, what's the transformation of power? How, how does power transform? At the end of the first interrogation, Jesus says, the reason I've come into this world is to bear witness for the truth, right? But how is he going to do it? Is he going to do it just by being a rabbi? Is he going to do it by being a good teacher? By being a nice gentleman? Jesus is a great guy. He was such a good teacher, such a nice prophet. No, it's got to be a lot more than that. And we see that in the second interrogation after he's been whipped. Pilate says, don't you understand I have the power to crucify you? This is Pilate's final power play as he stands before Christ, his bloodied face, his weakened body, and he won't answer him. He says, don't you understand I have the power to crucify you? And Jesus says, no, the only power you have is the power I've given you because this is part of the plan that I should die. You see, Pilate, in the very thing that you think will shut me up, in the very thing that you will use your greatest power for, will be the thing that exalts me through all generations. The cross has become a beacon for 2,000 years of hope and life and, what, and who our God is. And so the very thing that they meant to destroy him is a beacon of hope. Look at Job. Satan wanted to destroy him. And the very thing that he thought would destroy him, take his family, take his wife, take his, uh, his livelihood, take his health, take everything from him, and he will curse you, God. The very thing meant for his destruction is the thing because he did not rely on the power of who he was, but on the truth of who God is, and it is the thing that strengthened him and the thing that brought him back. So Jesus is like, you want to know the power of the truth? Well, just sit back and watch, Pilate. Remember when he says, what is truth? And he's, by the way, I've, I've preached this wrong in the past. I've often thought when I read that, that he was saying, what is truth? Sort of quizzic, inquisically, like, mm, what is truth? And then he walks out. No, he's actually, it's a, it's, if you understand it in context, and this is where I was wrong, he's actually sort of scoffing and mocking him. Like, what is your truth compared to my power? What is truth? Nobody knows what truth is. Don't give me that. I have the power to crucify you. What is your truth? Jesus says, well, my truth will trump your power any day of the week. So here's how we're going to close. In order for you to live in this and in order for you to recognize that this is true for your life, you have to understand first, and foremost, above all else, the Lord utterly delights in you. You hear that? He delights in you. It's not like he likes you. I'm not telling you he generically loves you. I'm saying he takes pleasure and delight in who you are. Have you ever thought about the Lord that way? Have you ever thought about him just delighting in who you are? You see, until you see that, until you can see how he emptied himself of his glory, how he who had all the power laid it down, laid it down so that you 
could have eternal life, could know him, could be back in relationship, could be made right, could do the thing that you could not do on your own. He laid it down and took upon himself this interaction with one of his own creation, Pilate. To the degree that that gets into your heart and fills your heart is to the degree that you become safe from letting power corrupt you. The further you let that truth that the Lord delights in you, the Lord loves you, the safer you get from power corrupting you because you begin to find your identity, your strength, any recognition you need in who God is. You want to know the awesome thing about God as a father? Is he pours out recognition upon us. Did you know that? He pours out recognition. He doesn't just privately tell you he loves you. What I have noticed with the Lord in my life is when you walk closely near him and you seek him and you're crying out for purpose and identity, he will pour it out upon you. Others will see it. Others will comment on how the Lord's favor is upon you. He will move through you in mighty ways. He's not just a father who privately will show you affection and then when other people are around, it's like, well, I barely know him. They're kind of a sinner and gross. He loves you. You hear me? He loves you. And his truth, stand by his truth. As we're at the beginning of this political season, what changed Rome was a group of marginal, poor, outcast people who begin to love their neighbor, love each other, stay true to what the family is, how God designed it, and it began to change the entire culture of a country, of an empire. You and I in this political season can do the same thing. Imagine for me, if in, for a moment, if Christian men and women in this country, and there's something like 50 to 60 million professing Christian men and women in this country, now just imagine if we didn't engage in political backbiting, if we didn't hate somebody with the opposite view of us or did the thing that we often do as Christians, which we're not gonna hate them, we're just not gonna talk to them. We're gonna cut them out of our life because I just hate that all they ever talk about is this, blah, 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 blah. What if we actually begin to follow the truth of Christ and we begin to serve and love? We begin to have patience and forbearance. We begin to understand the person and their position rather than showing them our position and why we're right. What if 50 million Christians began to do that? What if only half? What if only 1%? What if only the few hundred people who go to Life Point? You think it would make a difference? Yeah. I do. We live in a world more connected than ever, which means if we have five, 600 people who attend here at Life Point on any given Sunday, you're all connected to probably a network of over 100,000 people spread out. And if you begin to set an example and you begin to love and you begin to show a difference, it can have a real impact. But you're only going to be able to do that to the level that you know Jesus Christ loves you and is for you. Make sense? All right, let's go be political awesome this season, huh? All right, let's pray. God, Lord, watching this and seeing this as John recounts this time as you go before Pilate, as you endured the criticism, as you endured the physical abuse, your heart was still tender towards Judas. 
Your heart was still tender towards Peter as he denied you. Your heart was tender towards Pilate. Lord, your heart was even tender to those who stood outside yelling, crucify him. Lord, we are no better than you. Certainly no better than you. Give us courage. The church now needs courage more than ever to love our enemies, to not take arguments by force and power, but through love and truth, gentleness, kindness. Teach us what this means, Lord, over the next year as we see examples and opportunities to withstrain, withhold emotion and anger, and instead supplement it with your joy, a peace that passes understanding and loving kindness. In Jesus' name. As we close here, we're going to come to the Lord's table as we observe communion together. Friends, you can't do what I'm saying apart from Christ. You can't muster up enough goodness. You can't muster up enough courage and self-control to not lash out at people who are tearing down the name of God, tearing down your personal name, coming against you. But when you become a son or daughter of Christ, you, you receive his Holy Spirit. We know that when Christ was baptized and he came out of the water, we know that the Holy Spirit came down upon him in a very powerful way, right? We know that in the, in the day uh, in the upper room there after Christ had risen from the dead as all those who loved him were gathered together and his spirit fell on them and immense power came over them. You have access to God's Holy Spirit and that's the only way you're going to accomplish this. Not relying on your own strength or your knowledge or your study but to rely solely on the Lord. And that's why we partake of this communion together here. If you have a relationship with Christ, we invite you to partake. We have three stations up front and three in the back. And when we partake together, we are saying together as one unified group of people from all different structures, backgrounds, race, all that. We are saying that we are one body in Christ Jesus. Because of the blood and the body of Christ, we get to live. I'm going to pray and bless it, and then you can come forward or back wherever it's closest for you, and then we're going to close in worship, okay? Let's pray. Father, we bless the communion now. In the name of Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit, God, uphold us. Uphold us, Lord, when we are weak. Uphold us when we, when we fall. Show us the error of our ways that we would turn and repent. Lord, do not take your hands off this country, God. Would you continue, Lord, to bring righteous men and women into office? Would you continue to uphold the church, Lord? Would you continue to cause men and women to rise up in truth? And would we be a giving, serving, generous church? In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead. Let's partake of communion together.